0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain, chapter twenty four. The escape. The short winter day was nearly ended. The streets were deserted save for a few random stragglers, and these hurried straight along, with the intent look of people who were only anxious to accomplish their errands as quickly as possible and then snugly housed themselves from the rising wind and the gathering twilight. They looked neither to the right nor the left. They paid no attention to our party—they did not even seem to see them. Edward the Sixth wondered if the spectacle of a king on his way to jail had ever encountered such marvelous indifference before. By and by the constable arrived at a deserted market-square and proceeded to cross it. When he had reached the middle of it, Hendon laid his hand upon his arm and said in a low voice, bide a moment, good sir. There is none in hearing, and I would say a word to thee. My duty forbids it, sir. Prithee, hinder me not. The night comes on. Stay, nevertheless, for the matter concerns thee nearly. Turn thy back a moment, and seem not to see. Let this poor lad escape. This, to me, sir? I arrest thee in— Nay, be not too hasty. See thou be careful, and commit no foolish error.' Then he shut his voice down to a whisper, and said in the man's ear, the pig thou hast purchased for eightpence may cost thee thy neck, man." The poor constable, taken by surprise, was speechless at first, then found his tongue and fell to blustering and threatening. But Hendon was tranquil, and waited with patience till his breath was spent, then said, "'I have a liking to thee, friend, and would not willingly see thee come to harm. Observe. I heard it all, every word. I will prove it to thee.' Then he repeated the conversation which the officer and the woman had had together in the hall, word for word, and ended with, "'There! Have I set it forth correctly? Should not I be able to set it forth correctly before the judge, if occasion required?' The man was dumb with fear and distress for a moment. Then he rallied and said with forced lightness, "'Tis making a mighty matter indeed out of a jest! I but plagued the woman for mine amusement!' kept you the woman's pig for amusement the man answered sharply not else good sir i tell thee twas but a jest i do begin to believe thee said hendon with a perplexing mixture of mockery and half conviction in his tone but tarry thou here a moment whilst i run and ask his worship for nathless he being a man experienced in law in jests in he was moving away still talking the constable hesitated fidgeted spat out an oath or two then cried out hold hold good sir uh, prithee uh, wait a little uh, the judge why man he hath no more sympathy with a jest than hath a, a, a dead corpse uh, come and we will speak further uh, oddsbody uh, i i seem to be an evil case and all for an innocent innocent and thoughtless pleasantry. I am a man of family, and my wife, and little ones List reason, good your worship, what wouldst thou of me?" "'Only that thou be blind and dumb and paralytic, whilst one may count a hundred thousand. Counting slowly,' said Hendon, with the expression of a man who asks but a reasonable favor, and that a very little one. "'It is my destruction,' said the constable, despairingly ah be reasonable good sir only look at this matter on all its sides and see how mere a jest it is how manifestly and how plainly it is so and even if one granted it were not a jest it is a fault so small that e'en the grimmest penalty it could call forth would be but a rebuke and warning from the judge's lips hendon replied with a solemnity which chilled the air about him this jest of thine hath a name in law. What, you, what it is? I knew it not. For adventure I have been unwise. I never dreamed it a name. Ah, sweet heaven, I thought it was original. Yes, it hath a name. In the law this crime is called non compos mentis lex talionis, sic transit gloria mundi. Ah, oh, my God! And the penalty is death god be merciful to me a sinner by advantage taken of one in fault in dire peril and at thy mercy thou hast seized goods worth above thirteen pence paying but a trifle for the same and this in the eye of the law is constructive baratry misprision of treason malfeasance in office ad hominem expurgatis in statu quo and the penalty is death, by the halter, without ransom, commutation, or benefit of clergy. Bear me up, bear me up, sweet sir, my legs do fail me. Be thou merciful, spare me this doom, and I will turn my back and see naught that shall happen. Good. Now thou'rt wise and reasonable, and thou'lt restore the pig. I will, I will indeed, nor ever touch another, though heaven send it and an archangel fetch it. Go! I am blind for thy sake. I see nothing. I will say thou didst break in and wrest the prisoner from my hands by force. It is but a crazy ancient door. I will batter it down myself twixt midnight and the morning. Do it, good soul. No harm will come of it. The judge hath a loving charity for this poor lad, and will shed no tears and break no jailer's bones for his escape. End of chapter 24 CHAPTER Twenty Five. HENDON HALL As soon as Hendon and the King were out of sight of the constable, His Majesty was instructed to hurry to a certain place outside the town and wait there, whilst Hendon should go to the inn and settle his account. Half an hour later the two friends were blithely jogging eastward on Hendon's sorry steeds. The King was warm and comfortable now, for he had cast his rags and clothed himself in the second-hand suit which Hendon had bought on London Bridge hendon wished to guard against over-fatiguing the boy he judged that hard journeys irregular meals and illiberal measures of sleep would be bad for his crazed mind whilst rest regularity and moderate exercise would be pretty sure to hasten its cure he longed to see the stricken intellect made well again and its diseased visions driven out of the tormented little head therefore he resolved to move by easy stages toward the home whence he had so long been banished, instead of obeying the impulse of his impatience and hurrying along night and day. When he and the king had journeyed about ten miles, they reached a considerable village, and halted there for the night, at a good inn. The former relations were resumed. Hendon stood behind the king's chair while he dined, and waited upon him, undressed him when he was ready for bed then took the floor for his own quarters and slept athwart the door, rolled up in a blanket. The next day, and the day after, they jogged lazily along, talking over the adventures they had met since their separation, and mightily enjoying each other's narratives. Hendon detailed all his wide wanderings in search of the king, and described how the archangel had led him a fool's journey all over the forest, and taken him back to the hut, finally, when he found he could not get rid of him. Then, he said, the old man went into the bedchamber and came staggering back, looking broken-hearted, and saying he had expected to find that the boy had returned and lain down and there to rest. But it was not so. Hendon had waited at the hut all day. Hope of the King's return died out then, and he departed upon the quest again. "'And old Sanctum Sanctorum was truly sorry your Highness came not back,' said Hendon. "'I saw it in his face. "'Mary, I will never doubt that,' said the King, and then told his own story, after which Hendon was sorry he had not destroyed the archangel. During the last day of the trip Hendon's spirits were soaring. His tongue ran constantly. He talked about his old father and his brother Arthur, and told of many things which illustrated their high and generous characters. He went into loving frenzies over his Edith, and was so glad-hearted that he was even able to say some gentle and brotherly things about Hugh. He dwelt a deal on the coming meeting at Hendon Hall. What a surprise it would be to everybody, and what an outburst of thanksgiving and delight there would be! It was a fair region, dotted with cottages and orchards, and the road led through broad pasture-lands whose receding expanses, marked with gentle elevations and depressions, suggested the swelling and subsiding undulations of the sea. In the afternoon the returning prodigal made constant deflections from his course to see if by ascending some hillock he might not pierce the distance and catch a glimpse of his home. At last he was successful, and cried out excitedly, "'There is the village, my Prince, and there is the hall close by. You may see the towers from here, and that wood there, that is my father's park. Ah, now thou'lt know what state and grandeur be!' a house with seventy rooms—think of that—and seven-and-twenty servants! A brave lodging for such as we, is it not so? Come, let us speed—my impatience will not brook further delay." All possible hurry was made. Still, it was after three o'clock before the village was reached. The travelers scampered through it, Hendon's tongue going all the time here is the church covered with the same ivy none gone none added. yonder is the inn the old red lion and yonder is the market-place here is the maypole and here the pump nothing is altered nothing but the people at any rate ten years make a change in people some of these i seem to know but none know me so his chat ran on The end of the village was soon reached, then the travelers struck into a crooked, narrow road, walled in with tall hedges, and hurried briskly along it for a half-mile, then passed into a vast flower-garden through an imposing gateway, whose huge stone pillars bore sculptured armorial devices. A noble mansion was before them. "'Welcome to Hendon Hall, my King!' exclaimed Miles. "'Ah, tis a great day! my father and my brother and the lady edith will be so mad with joy that they will have eyes and tongues for none but me in the first transports of the meeting and so thou'lt seem but coldly welcomed but minded not twill soon seem otherwise for when i say thou art my ward and tell them how costly is my love for thee thou'lt see them take thee to their breasts for miles hendon's sake and make their house and hearts thy home for ever after The next moment Hendon sprang to the ground before the great door, helped the king down, then took him by the hand and rushed within. A few steps brought him to a spacious apartment. He entered, seated the king with more hurry than ceremony, then ran toward a young man who sat at a writing-table in front of a generous fire of logs. "'Embrace me, Hugh,' he cried, and say thou'rt glad I am come again. And call our father, for home is not home till I shall touch his hand, and see his face, and hear his voice once more." But Hugh only drew back, after betraying a momentary surprise, and bent a grave stare upon the intruder—a stare which indicated somewhat of offended dignity, at first, then changed, in response to some inward thought or purpose, to an expression of marvelling curiosity, mixed with a real or assumed compassion. Presently he said, in a mild voice, Thy wits seem touched, poor stranger. Doubtless thou hast suffered privations and rude buffetings at the world's hands. Thy looks and dress betoken it. Whom dost thou take me to be?" "'Take thee. Prithee for whom else than whom thou art? I take thee to be Hugh Hendon,' said Miles sharply. The other continued, in the same soft tone. And whom dost thou imagine thyself to be? Imagination hath naught to do with it. Dost thou pretend thou knowest me not for thy brother, Miles Hendon?' An expression of pleased surprise flitted across Hugh's face, and he exclaimed, "'What? Thou art not jesting? Can the dead come to life? God be praised if it be so. Our poor lost boy restored to our arms after all these cruel years. Ah, it seems too good to be true. It is too good to be true.' I charge thee, have pity. Do not trifle with me. Quick, come to the light. Let me scan thee well." He seized Miles by the arm, dragged him to the window, and began to devour him from head to foot with his eyes, turning him this way and that, and stepping briskly around him and about him to prove him, from all points of view, whilst the returned prodigal, all aglow with gladness, smiled, laughed, and kept nodding his head, and saying, Go on, brother, go on, and fear not, thou'lt find nor limb nor feature that cannot bide the test. Scour and scan me to thy content, my good old Hugh. I am indeed thy old Miles, thy same old Miles, thy lost brother. Is't not so? Ah, tis a great day! I said t'was a great day. Give me thy hand, give me thy cheek. Lord, I am like to die of very joy.' He was about to throw himself upon his brother, but Hugh put up his hand in dissent, then dropped his chin mournfully upon his breast, saying with emotion, "'Ah, God of his mercy, give me strength to bear this grievous disappointment!' Miles, amazed, could not speak for a moment. Then he found his tongue and cried out, "'What disappointment? Am I not thy brother?' Hugh shook his head sadly and said, "'I pray heaven it may prove so and that other eyes may find the resemblances that are hid from mine. Alack, I fear me, the letter spoke but too truly. What letter? One that came from overseas some six or seven years ago. It said my brother died in battle. It was a lie. Call thy father. He will know me. One may not call the dead. Dead? Miles' voice was subdued, and his lips trembled. My father dead. Oh, this is heavy news. Half my new joy is withered now. Prithee, let me see my brother Arthur. He will know me, he will know me, and console me. He also is dead. God be merciful to me, a stricken man! Gone, both gone, the worthy taken and the worthless spared in me. Ah, I crave your mercy. Do not say, Lady Edith, is dead. No, she lives. Then, God be praised, my joy is whole again. Speed thee, brother, let her come to me. And she say I am not myself, but she will not. No, no, she will know me. I were a fool to doubt it. Bring her, bring the old servants, they too will know me. All are gone but five. Peter, Halsey, David, Bernard, and Margaret. So saying, Hugh left the room. Miles stood musing a while, then began to walk the floor, muttering, The five arch-villains have survived, the two-and-twenty Lille, and, honest, tis an odd thing!" He continued walking, back and forth muttering to himself. He had forgotten the King entirely. By and by His Majesty said gravely, and with a touch of genuine compassion, though the words themselves were capable of being interpreted ironically, "'Mind not thy mischance, good man. There be others in the world whose identity is denied, and whose claims are derided. Thou hast company. "'Ah, my king!' cried Hendon, colouring slightly. "'Do not thou condemn me. Wait, and thou shalt see. I am no impostor. She will say it. You shall hear it from the sweetest lips in England. I, an impostor? Why, I know this old hall, these pictures of my ancestors, and all these things that are about us, as a child knoweth its own nursery. Here was I born and bred, my lord. I speak the truth. I would not deceive thee.' and should none else believe, I pray thee, do not thou doubt me. I could not bear it.' "'I do not doubt thee,' said the king, with a childlike simplicity and faith. "'I thank thee out of my heart,' exclaimed Hendon, with a fervency which showed that he was touched. The king added, with the same gentle simplicity, "'Dost thou doubt me?' A guilty confusion seized upon Hendon, and he was grateful that the door opened to admit Hugh at that moment, and saved him the necessity of replying. A beautiful lady, richly clothed, followed Hugh, and after her came several liveried servants. The lady walked slowly, with her head bowed and her eyes fixed upon the floor. The face was unspeakably sad. Miles Hendon sprang forward, crying, "'Oh, my Edith, my darling!' But Hugh waved him back gravely and said to the lady, "'Look upon him. Do you know him?' At the sound of Miles's voice the woman had started, slightly, and her cheeks had flushed. She was trembling now. She stood still during an impressive pause of several moments, then slowly lifted up her head and looked into Hendon's eyes with a stony and frightened gaze. The blood sank out of her face, drop by drop, till nothing remained but the gray pallor of death. Then she said in a voice as dead as the face, "'I know him not,' and turned with a moan and a stifled sob and tottered out of the room. Miles Hendon sank into a chair and covered his face with his hands after a pause his brother said to the servants you have observed him do you know him they shook their heads then the master said the servants know you not sir i fear there is some mistake you have seen that my wife knew you not thy wife in an instant hugh was pinned to the wall with an iron grip about his throat oh thou fox-hearted slave i see it all thou'st writ the lying letter thyself and my stolen bride and goods are its fruit There now, get thee gone, lest I shame mine honorable soldiership with the slaying of so pitiful a mannikin." Hugh, red-faced and almost suffocated, reeled to the nearest chair, and commanded the servants to seize and bind the murderous stranger. They hesitated, and one of them said, "'He is armed, Sir Hugh, and we are weaponless.' "'Armed? What of it, and ye so many? Upon him, I say!' But Miles warned them to be careful what they did, and added, "'Ye know me of old. I have not changed. Come on, and it like you. This reminder did not hearten the servants much. They still held back. "'Then go, ye paltry cowards, and arm yourselves and guard the doors whilst I send one to fetch the watch,' said Hugh. He turned at the threshold, and said to Miles, "'You'll find it to your advantage to offend not with useless endeavours at escape.' "'Escape? Spare thyself discomfort, and that is all that troubles thee. For Miles Hendon is master of Hendon Hall, and all its belongings. He will remain, doubt it not.' End of chapter 25